As I mentioned earlier at the beginning of our service, also if any of you are friends with me on Facebook, you may have noted that on Friday night I posted I was having trouble with my message, which is really good to do on Facebook. I got lots of good ideas. (laughs) Uh, Late Friday afternoon, I actually took to writing another message on another verse outside of Samuel that actually spoke to me um, that I was studying personally, but... I finally found a connection actually between both the verse I was writing on and uh, in our passage today in 1 Samuel 2. But with the way I frame our message, since I did an entire chapter last week, I thought it would only make sense if I did just three verses today. So, because <laughs> I want to give Hannah's song here justice. But for tradition's sake, let's read all of uh, 1 Samuel 2, 1 through 10. And then I'm just going to forewarn you, it's going to sound like a different sermon for a while, unrelated from 1 Samuel 2, but we'll come back to 1 Samuel 2. So stand with me in honor of reading and hearing the words, Lord's Word together, please, if you're able to. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exults in the Lord, my horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the, the bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king. And exalt the horn of his anointed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we believe in the Holy Spirit who wrote these scriptures. We believe that he speaks to us today. Father, we believe you can give us ears and hearts and minds to receive your word and understand them. Help us to be yielded to what you would say to us. Father, we thank you again for Jesus who came and lived and died and rose again so that we too can die to our sin and rise again. Have your way in our hearts and say what it is you desire in these moments. Help us to be obedient. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Evangelical is a term 
that has been coined to describe the way that some churches are, as well as a movement that is transdenominational, so in other words, a movement shared by many denominations. And so the odds are many of you, maybe not all of you, but many of you, if you were in a different denomination before you came to Woodland and you started attending the Friends Church, you were likely evangelical and you likely are still evangelical because Woodland Friends Church is an evangelical denomination. And we find our historical roots and we find our broader affiliation under the banner of Evangelical Friends Church. Well, what does evangelical mean? The best definition that I could find to describe evangelicalism as a movement says that at its roots, evangelicalism has four distinctive aspects. Conversionism, don't worry, I will describe these a little bit more, so if you hear these words and you're lost, I will describe them. But conversionism, biblicism, now this even lost me until I read about it, crucentrism, (laughs) and activism. So again, I'll unpack these for you, and if you think about the terms, I think you'll understand them rather quickly. First of all, conversionism is an ex- uh, evangel- yeah, evangelicals place a lot of weight and focus and attention to the conversion experience. Now, for some of us, this is like a no-brainer. How can you be a Christian and not place a lot of weight on the conversion experience? But think about evangelicalism as opposed to other strands of Christianity Uh, that focuses more on other things such as high church or Catholic or Episcopal or mainline churches. Uh, Maybe right ritual, sacrament, and membership are more emphasized than the idea of conversion. Maybe social activism and social justice more than conversion. Evangelicals are concerned with conversion. When was I saved? When will my friends be saved? How are we reaching out to others to be saved? The second ism, Biblicism. Evangelicals are usually 100% behind the Bible. It's the Word of God, unquestioned, without fault and error, a high regard for the Bible. Again, this is different than other churches where maybe tradition or routine or ritual or church authority or hierarchy seems to have equal say with the Bible. And or the Bible is seen as having good principles, but they're dated on other issues when apparently we've been more enlightened and we've discovered better knowledge than God. Tongue in cheek. <laughs> the third ism. Now, this is the really weird crucentrism, but that is crucifixion centrism. Evangelicals place a high regard on the crucifixion. Uh, Jesus' life. Passion, death, resurrection, his saving power, his saving blood. That great exchange, our sin for his life. Some churches who call themselves Christian, true story, they debate. Did Jesus really rise again? How does his blood even save us? How does the crucifixion save us? Fourth-ism, activism. Sometimes that might sound politically liberal, but we're talking about being public about the gospel, seeking to proselytize, being active in the Great Commission, being active 
and good works for Jesus. Other churches, they're not out to make converts. They're just there to be a welcoming social club. So evangelicalism, why do I bring this up? Three of these isms are in large part concerned with one thing. Uh, conversionism, crucentrism, and activism. That is wanting to see people converted, wanting to bring people to behold and believe in the crucifixion, and then actively trying to, to do this can make the Christian life in large part about one thing. The saving experience. The salvation moment. The few words and the few moments before God to be saved from our sins. The other verse I wanted to preach about and how it connects to this is the, lang- is the language of kingdom. Kings and kingdoms. John 3.3 3 was that other verse. Jesus speaking to Nicodemus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, if some of you, you're like me, you, maybe you've already been thinking this, it's going to distract you from what I'm going to say, because here's what you're thinking. Kevin's getting farther and longer and more away from 1 Samuel 2, and this is going to make for a long sermon, and, and rein that in. <laughs> Trek with me real quick. I just described for you three Christianly, culturally strong strands and roots that are driving your and my focus into one of two subjects that Jesus brings up here in John 3.3. The two subjects are born again, one must be born again, and the kingdom of God. And so what takes the time and the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus is a discussion on being born again. So the evangelist John, divinely inspired, records for us in John 3. What I wonder though, is that the framing of this sentence that seems to me that, again, Jesus talked about two topics, being born again and seeing the kingdom of God, but it just seems to me, before Nicodemus was caught off guard by an odd phrase, did Jesus want to talk about the other topic? Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The opposite of that is, after one is born again, he can see the kingdom of God. In other words, I wonder if Jesus has a desire for Nicodemus and if Jesus has a desire for you and I, fellow Christian, and that desire is for us to be removed of blindness concerning the kingdom of God. What if evangelical, culturally saturated with desires of conversion for you and your loved ones and culturally saturated to be enamored with and caught up in the crucifixion and Christ on the cross, culturally saturated to be active in one thing, proselytizing. What if Jesus says one must be born again, where we all evangelicals shine, we know all about that, we want to live in that, we want to talk about that, but Jesus says one must be born again to see the kingdom of God. Born again, one subject, one situation, one occasion, one hurdle, see the kingdom of God, destination. The desire of God for His people, the lifelong fruits of the prior subject, born again. Do you hear that? you understand what I'm saying? Maybe. (laughs) How does this even connect 
to first and or first Samuel two and Hannah's song, Kevin. Thank you for asking. Hannah lives pre Christ. Hannah lives pre born again explanation. And Hannah is singing a song, and her song is actually about the king and his kingdom. The king and the kingdom. The beautiful thing about the kingdom of God is that Jesus himself tells us, actually he tells Pilate, that his kingdom is not of this world. And while the gospel accounts tells us that Jesus begins his ministry saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, we do know that for the covenant community for Israel, foreshadows of the kingdom of God existed. You follow me there? Okay. Hannah's song is a good prelude to both first and second Samuel. If you were here last week, you might remember that first and second Samuel were actually one large book. And it is bookended by a similar song in, by King David in 2 Samuel 22. Within Hannah's song, she lays out four primary aspects of the kingdom of God by way of how the king himself interacts with us. So here's all the connection. I brought up evangelicalism to reveal for you and I that we have a deep intense fascination with the conversion experience, the being saved. What I'm not saying is that we over-enamor ourselves with it to death. (laughs) What I am saying is perhaps we should just be as over-enamored with the kingdom of God. Do you hear that? That we need to be sure, yes, definitely excited about seeing people saved, but now by God's grace, Hannah, who lived before the idea of even being born again, let again, let alone saved in the way that we understand it, Hannah is going to peel back our blindness and show us what the kingdom of God is like and who our king is. Four primary aspects of this song, and we're going to look at two today. But to give you some the broad four to be thinking about, first, we have a king, excuse me, ignore that, we have a king, who saves us into joy. That's going to be the first aspect. Secondly, we have a king whose holiness humbles us. Thirdly, we will, and we will look again at these two next week, but we have a king invested in our lives. And lastly, we have a king who judges, comma, thankfully. (laughs) So the first two we're looking at today, again, the king who saves us into joy. And the second one, the king whose holiness humbles us. So here in verse 1, a king who saves us into joy, we read again the first lines of her song. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exults in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Quick background with Hannah's song. She's singing this. In response to the fact that she had Samuel. You remember last week, last chapter, she was barren. She prayed to the sovereign Lord for a baby. He granted it to her. But more than a baby, she gets to have Samuel, the last judge, a great leader, a great figure at the dawn of the kingdom of Israel. 
And even though she is in turn giving Samuel to the tabernacle or the temple at Shiloh to be raised by a priest, she is just in complete and total joy. She says, my heart exults or to jump for joy or even you could say triumph. But then note to exalt, to rejoice or triumph in the Lord. One commentator would write, God is the ground of rejoicing as he is the object of praise. And I believe this is a very important distinction because even in receiving a great gift of God, Samuel, a son, Hannah is moved not as much because God gave her a son, but because of who God is. We talked about this last week. We have a king who cares. He's a great Sovereign God, master and sustainer of the universe who even cares about us. God is the ground of Hannah's rejoicing and the object of praise. Secondly, Hannah says her horn is exalted in the Lord. So in this society or culture, a horn is the symbol of strength or power on an animal. So we're not talking about a horn, but a horn on an animal. And so... Hannah is saying that her strength is exalted or or comes from the Lord. The Lord is her strength. And then, my mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Note here the source of her reasoning to say that she derides her enemies because it's not because I am so great, (laughs) because I am so awesome, But it comes from the fact that God is her salvation. That word salvation might be familiar to you. It's a Hebrew word. It's Yeshua. Even so, salvation in this sense, in the Old Testament sense, it's not how you and I commonly think, right? Uh, I mean, Hannah can't say here, I'm so glad Jesus came to die for my sins. (laughs) Because Hannah doesn't know that yet. Jesus hasn't shown up yet. We're over a thousand years before Jesus showed up on the earth. Rather, salvation of the Lord commonly meant deliverance or victory from something, helped or being saved. For Hannah, it was indeed a deliverance from barrenness and from the shame that it brings in that culture, a very personal salvation. Salvation... And this reasoning that allows her to deride her enemy comes from humility. See, I would submit that at times as Christians who claim to take joy in salvation, we're either pathetic or we're prideful, but we're just not humble. We're pathetic or we're prideful, but we're not humble. Sometimes we're pathetic and we throw pity parties over the times we're sinful And we're still fearful that when it comes to the enemies of God and the enemies of ourself, whereas Paul tells us in Colossians that Jesus canceled our record of debt. He nailed it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities. He put them to open shame and he triumphed over them. Sometimes Christians go the opposite route and we get prideful. We think that because Jesus dies for us and because he serves us, we suddenly become his master and tell him what to do. And we think we own his playbook, so to speak. And so we are certain that whenever we use his name, he's obligated to do what we demand. Hannah 
is humble. She doesn't still fear her enemies, and the only reason she's able to deride her enemies is because she rejoices in God's salvation. I want you to see that we have a king who saves us into joy. For Hannah, she's having a boy, she's happy, and her enemies, whether that be generally or specifically her, the other wife of Elkanah who mocked her, uh, were wrong before the Lord. The Lord was working His will. You have a reason to be joyful. Your sins are forgiven. The battle may not be done, but the war is. Satan is defeated. The end of this world will mean only one thing. God's ultimate and final victory. But as I said about it, or maybe as, I don't know if I said this earlier or not, this was like my fourth um, manuscript. Let's just not think about the end of the world. But let's also rejoice in the fact that God has blessed us and given us the great task to be a part of this winning game. Illustration for you. Do you ever like to play board or card games? But when certain people ask you to play certain games, you turn it down because that certain person always wins (laughs) at that certain game. That's my dad. He has a love and hate relationship with card games, at least. He says he loves them, but he turns down many chances to play them because he always loses. (laughs) Well, this is God saying, do you want to sit this game in? You're going to win because I'm in charge. (laughs) That's the joy you should feel. Secondly, Hannah tells us that we have a king whose holiness humbles us. So if you're pathetic, woe is me, I sin all the time, God hates me. Or if you're proud... God's going to do my will because he's serving me, but you're just not humble. Here's how to be humbled. Verses 2 and 3. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. Hannah moves from rejoicing in the God of her salvation, who is her strength, to then reveal who this God is, completely holy, pure, perfect, set apart. In fact, we see three facts here in verse 2 where Yahweh is beyond compare. He's holy, set apart. There is none beside him. We're going to come back to that. And then lastly, there is no rock like our God. And we'll come back to that. Because secondly, there is none beside him. So in other words, who is God like? No one. <laughs> it's, he's pretty unique. It's an understatement. Also, in a time of pagan deities, and every nation has their God, Hannah is confessing monotheism. There is none besides you. And I know that this is just a theological fact that God is one, and maybe we've heard it all before. But I wonder if the Lord can do us a favor today and move it from theological fact to passionate truth about the reality. Because there is no other God. And for those who follow this King, for those who confess allegiance to this King, for those who accept salvation from this King, it should give us great confidence and joy in this King. 
in this truth because it means in a world where little kings and queens constantly vie for power in the world, the only king who has ultimate power transcends and he rules without rival. Don't buy into the false lie that the enemy wants you to believe. That God has an equal and opposite. He does not. God answers to no one. And everyone, including the powers of hell itself, answers to our king. And that, mean, that means when rumors of war circulate, our king knows what's going to happen. That means when the darkest of tragedies befall you, you have a king who died for you. And a king, last week we talked about this, has all powers and resources at his disposal. And it is his will to do good to those who seek him out. There is no rock like our God. That's the hope that Hannah takes in her holy beyond compare God and her no equal or rival God, that he is a rock. A a symbol meaning that he's immovable. He is a place of refuge that we can hide behind. He's secure. There's no place on earth that is as secure as the Lord Jesus. Let me say that again because some of us need to really hear that. There is no place on earth that is as secure as the Lord Jesus. Too many times I've been in places and I ask, where do I turn? (laughs) How will I be safe? Look no further than our rock. And His holiness and His absolute place of safety and His transcendence should be a pride killer when it comes to us. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed. Again, Hannah could be thinking personally about Penina, that she shouldn't talk so proudly or arrogantly. But also the reality of God's holiness and existence should humble and quiet us for all time. Friends, I don't know what you hear and see, but this is what I hear and see. We live in a very polarized, politicized world where the default, the native language is so full of pride and arrogance and assumption. We either think we know what the other party thinks and we suspect them, or we're so flabbergasted because the other party's thinking is so out of this world, so we decide to belittle them. And we live on raw nerves and fear. And he said and she said and he's innocent and you're stupid. And listen, the truth is, is God's not coming down to listen in on your counsel. Or his counsel or her counsel. God's got his own counsel. And so the point is, is to pray for his counsel to stand. To pray for his wisdom to lead and pray for his power to move forward. And before any of us open up our mouth on any occasion, are we going to be speaking proudly? Are we going to be speaking arrogantly? Because God will hold us accountable, says Jesus, for every careless word we speak. I fear that some of us think all we need to do is go to our favorite news website or listen to our favorite teacher or commentator and we buy their words as facts. And we just open up our mouths and let it rip. And sometimes in the process, we rip into people, places, or events, and we're just showing ourselves to be foolish in front of the King 
of knowledge who weighs actions and will hold us accountable for our words. You hear that? The king has no equal or rival. The king can and should be our place of refuge. And the king has the final word and knows events while we just speculate and speak out rashly on. His holiness should humble us. Well, we've only waded into three verses and two aspects uh, or themes of the kingdom of God thus far. But I hope you see it peeling back the layers of the kingdom of God. That when Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You see, Hannah is saying here that the kingdom that in the kingdom of God, we find a king who saves us into joy. And a king and kingdom that for those who follow the king, they are rightfully humbled by his holiness. Are we experiencing that joy today? One of my prayers privately was, Lord, I feel like I'm going to only be speaking on something theologically that I haven't experienced. Do we take joy in a world where it seems like sin is rampant, people are oppressed and depressed, The reason we take joy in the salvation of the Lord is that from his ultimate salvation from sin to everything else, which is less than the salvation from sin, but still as important and significant and poignant, such as the likes of a barren mother having a son. We have a king in a kingdom who has all things at his disposal and is willing to give good gifts. And he is a king whose very existence moves his subjects to joy. You know, King David would write in Psalm 1611, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Do you hear the present reality? That David is speaking of. He's not talking so much about a single salvation experience, but he's saying that when it comes to our God and and our king and his kingdom, he reveals that the path of life, which is a day by day something of longevity, more than just a single moment of conversion, it is a path of fullness. And in his presence, there is fullness of joy at the right hand of the king are pleasures forevermore. It's what moves Hannah to sing the joy that God gives by simply knowing him and being a part of his kingdom. And friends, in this kingdom, do we know God? Do we know the king as holy? Do we know him as our rock? Do we know him enough to know when to still our mouths before him and let his wisdom guide and direct us? Now, I've maybe scared you to know that our actions will be weighed. But also, do we take hope that not only our actions, but everyone else's actions will be weighed. And those who commit injustice and do evil are never getting away with it. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I... uh, I sometimes have wondered growing up as a Christian that I'm saved. Now what? And many times I I thought that maybe I wouldn't have worded it this way. And maybe I've heard even teaching that 
would try to compel me of the opposite, but sometimes I felt like it was a check mark in my life and I just kind of wait around to die and go to heaven. But Father, you, through causing us to be born again, move us into a kingdom. A kingdom that our allegiance is to one king, his name is Jesus. A kingdom that so far we've discovered is a kingdom of joy and pleasures. Um, Your word tells us to even take joy in trials. Still trying to figure that one out. Um, And you've told us here also that you're holy and that we should be humble before you. Humble does not mean humiliated. And humble doesn't mean a doormat. But we should still be humble before you because we know that you know all things. You know the heart of our most hated enemies. And the scary thing is you know our heart towards them as well. So we pray for forgiveness for hating. And we pray for obedience to be more like you. And we pray for trust in you to know that no matter where the world goes, Yours is a kingdom that has existed far before and will exist far after. And it's a kingdom that operates in all types of governments. And we just pray that you would help us to be at joy, to be in your kingdom. Help us to continue to want to invite others to be part of this kingdom, but also help us to live and operate and dwell in your kingdom. We love you. We thank you. We ask and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.